If you have a Bible nearby, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. And we're just going to keep that, like all that truth from those songs, the old songs, the new songs, whatever. We're going to keep that truth just going forward, those prayers for our kids. Um, everything uh, just works together. And in the book of Daniel, uh, we find a story that is probably familiar to, uh, to most of you. Uh, it's one of those stories that, that even people who maybe didn't grow up around church and stuff like that have probably heard of this. If uh, nothing else, maybe you've seen the VeggieTale rendition of it. Um, we're going to spend the next two weeks here in, in Daniel chapter 3. And uh, it's be- partially because I, once I got into studying it, I, was, I think I was trying to do too much in one sitting. And uh, like last week, you know, it was like David and Goliath week, and uh, we're going through some Old, Old Testament stories, and it was David and Goliath week, and I had two points that I probably could have done standalone sermons on, I was like, let me try to cram them in there, and this week it just didn't, just didn't seem to be what needed to happen, and so um, we're going to be here for both weeks, uh, this weekend, next week. And so in Daniel 3, let me just kind of catch us up a little bit. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. They had conquered Jerusalem. Uh, they had uh, just ransacked the whole place, took all the important stuff back with them, back to their capital, including the, the, like the best of the best in terms of their young men, their young, wise, intelligent men, and uh, led them through a program of kind of like trying to deconstruct them strip them of everything that, of all their thinking that was uh, in any way Jewish and try to uh, basically build them back up into uh, people who would be useful for the Babylonians. And so Daniel was one of those guys and uh, he had some friends who, uh, whose names were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's what we're talking about today is the fiery furnace story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was ruthless. Like he ruled the world and uh, would stop at nothing to get his way. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, he had a dream that uh, was full of symbolism that Daniel, uh, through the, the, like God's work uh, within Daniel, was able to give an interpretation. And a part of that interpretation was telling Nebuchadnezzar that his reign, that his kingdom, that his power, his glory, his whatever, was going to come to an end. And essentially he would be forgotten. And he didn't like that very much. Uh, he was glad for the interpretation of the dream, but didn't like it very much. And the dream involved this statue, and a part of the, his part of the statue was gold. And so um, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had a gold image constructed that was about 90 feet tall, about 9 feet wide. It was this gold-plated image of some sort. We don't know what it was. It, the scriptures don't tell us that. Um, some, I grew up thinking it was a picture of himself, but that, that doesn't really say that. I don't know where I got that from. Probably from VeggieTales, but, uh, got it from somewhere, but it wasn't a picture of himself. It was probably, uh, they guess some sort of image that was to his primary God. And so, uh, he builds this image sort of in rebellion against the dream, you know, and he placed this image in gold and he says, uh, my reign is going to last forever. I'm going to prove it. And so he has this image constructed and he gathers together all of the leaders from the entire kingdom, pulls them all together for this dedication ceremony of this image and tells them all, uh, whenever you hear the music play, 
then you are to bow down and worship this image. We're going we're gonna, to, in unity, as one kingdom, worship this image that is representing this God or whatever. And um, it's going to establish Nebuchadnezzar as the, uh, the earthly presence of this God and his authority and all that kind of stuff. And so they have the big gathering, and um, these are leaders from all, of all different sorts. Now, some of the leaders in the group were from uh, the, the Jewish plundering of Jerusalem when he brought back all these younger guys. And so uh, there would have been uh, people that he had brought back, uh, kind of try to reprogram them. They saw a lot of potential, made them leaders in different parts of the kingdom. So there were, were Jewish uh, refugees, let's say, scattered throughout this group of leaders all over this gathering. And there were probably thousands of people at this gathering. And so they, they get together for the dedication of the, of the image, the music sounds, and everyone bows down and worships uh, in unity, and it's this big, you know, wonderful moment. And then everyone, like, departs. And uh, so some uh, jealous tattletales, it's kind of the only way, that's Hebrew, actually. These jealous tattletales come up, and they come up to the king, and they're like, hey, uh, we saw some people not bowing down, and they're Jewish. And uh, we think you just need to know that because the penalty for not bowing down was that you'd be thrown into the furnace. That was the deal. So it's one of those really great situations, bow to this idol or you'll burn to death kind of thing. And they're like, and there's three guys that we saw that did not do that. And something needs to be done. This infuriated the king. And so he gathered them together. And this is sort of where we'll pick up in verse 12 of chapter 3. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the, gold, uh, the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true... O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I've set up. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, bagpipe, okay, uh, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So he gives them another chance because Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. Like he sees potential in them. That's why he has, has been training them and trying to reprogram them and all that kind of stuff. He, he, he wants them to bow down uh, because he does not want to lose them. So he's given them another, another shot. And look at verse 16. Or look at the end of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So he's kind of like, I mean... I'm kind of in control of this, right? So verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They would rather 
die than bow down to this idol. Like it was a no-brainer to them. They knew what was going to happen. They, they, out of respect for everything, they, they traveled to this gathering. They uh, were there. They heard the instructions, you know. They, um, they didn't, like, start a riot, you know. They didn't try to, whatever. They just, like, okay, when the music sounds, we're just not going to bow down. And the chances of them being, like, three, three in a row is very limited, like, very low. Probably they were scattered out in different places. So they're just like, we're just not, we're just not going to bow down because that's, like, we know our history. We know that God uh, does not approve of that, first of all. But, but greater than that, we, we have grown up reciting the Shema. We have grown up saying, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. We've been, we've been taught that. Our, our parents, uh, like, they, every morning we prayed that prayer. Every night we prayed that prayer. As we went places, like John was saying, as we drove to VBS, our parents prayed that prayer over us. Like we, we understand that bowing to that idol, like the, the reason why God is opposed to it is because that idol is not God. It's just that simple. It's a replacement God. It's a fake God. It's a false God. Um, and so we would, like death is fine with us. We would rather die than, than submit ourselves to something that is going to harm the one that we love and who loves us. They were commandment one people. They were Shema people. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the fact that they were like, uh, God, God can rescue us from a fire. But even if he doesn't, we're still not, we're not going to abandon our faith. We're talking about that part next week. Because there's something to be said for the fact that um, when everything's going your way, it's kind of easy to love the Lord. And when everything's going against you, it's kind of tough. That's why I wanted to split this into two, because I was like, I don't know if we can handle that. And the fact that this whole thing is really about idolatry. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And any time that I've ever spoken on idolatry... Uh, it has been a painful thing to prepare because uh, none of us are immune to the lure of an idol in our lives. And every time I've ever taught on idolatry, I've kind of tried to like get out of it somehow or like skirt around certain things. And the Lord's like, nope. He's like, do you love me? Do you love the people uh, that are in that room? Do you love what I'm doing? Do you, do you believe in uh, like that my words are true? Do you believe that I am married to you? Do you believe that as, a, as, I, as a, the husband to this church, that I do not want to find you uh, to be the standby while the church goes out and finds other boyfriends? Like, do you believe that I don't want the church to cheat on me? Because that's what idolatry is. And I'm like, yes, okay, all right, I get it. So uh, I want to talk about idolatry, and I want to talk about it in a way that uh, I hope is helpful if you have uh, your Bible still, jump over to Romans 1. We're going to get there in just a few minutes, but you don't have to turn if you don't want to. So I will say this. Uh, this is one of those sermons that's kind of a step on your toes kind of, kind of thing. We'll, we'll hold off on Romans for right now. Um, the, uh, this is kind of like a step on toes sermon, but um, 
I just want you to promise me something. If I, if I frustrate you, will you, will you set up time to talk to me so we can talk about it? Because the chances are I'm going to frustrate you. I frustrated myself. Like I'm so frustrated with myself over some of the things on this paper because it hits a real close to home. Um, there are times when folks get frustrated with me, but they don't talk to me about it. And it makes me so sad. I would much rather sit down and be able to talk through stuff. So I'm glad we have that agreement. Uh, now you're all nervous about what I'm like, what this dude's about to say. Uh, yeah, I want to set the bar really high. So I'll come in under it. And you'll be like, okay, that wasn't so bad. All right. Look, uh, so, some of this gets a little lost on us because we don't live in, in the same culture as them. So in a, in a polytheistic culture, idols are very common and they're very easy to spot. Um, some of you have, have been to, to India before. That's just like one, one of the places where, uh, where I've been and there's, um, there are just these statues everywhere. And sometimes it's just like on the side of the road and sometimes it's in a, like, a big elaborate temple. Um, and you see people going and you see them praying and you see them bringing flowers and bringing di- different things, asking these different gods to do certain things. Uh, in certain cultures, it's just very easy to spot. And then the bowing down to an idol, to a graven image like we see here, um, that's what he tells them to do. He says, when you hear the music, you bow down and you worship. Bowing down is a, like that is a, an, an act of um, recognizing the, the worth that's, that's here. You know, back when, um, when Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar met Alice Cooper uh, in the cinematic classic Wayne's World, uh, you might remember that they, they did their like, like, we're not worthy, and they start bowing down, and they were actually like pretty spot on. That's what you're saying. When, they, when it was time to bow down to this idol, you're saying, I am not worthy to be in your presence. You are worthy, I am not worthy. And it is a, a bending of the knee, a bowing down, a recognition and a submission to what's going on. So to these guys, they're like, okay, graven image, bowing down to it, not going to happen. Easy, easy to say no. In America, idolatry is just, it's just as prevalent it just, it's just, it's just subtle because we're, we're conditioned to it and um, the enemy is very sly. And so if someone were to like put up a statue of someone and like worship this, you would say, no, I'm not going to do that. But the, the heart of idolatry is very much still a thing for us. So what is an idol? An idol is simply a replacement God. That's all it is. It's a substitute. Let me, let me use another movie reference because that's what I do sometimes. It helps me understand things. Uh, Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, goes in um, and he gets, goes through the cave with Alfred Molina, remember? And uh, they go through the cave and they get past all the traps and stuff and there's the little golden head sitting there and uh, he wants to take it but he, know, he like, somehow knows it's like weighted this like ancient thing is like weighted, you know, triggered, you know, dart shooting in from the side or whatever. And so he takes a bag of dirt and tries to guess how much it is and takes a little bit out. And, and he makes this swap, that exchange, uh, he misjudged it and it all goes crazy and the boulder chases him. It's the whole thing. Sorry to spoil it for you. But um, that, that exchange right there, it's not a one-to-one ratio, but... That's what is happening. There's, there's an exchange that happens in, with a replacement God, with any sort of, of idol. 
So Romans 1, 25. If you want a good verse for like, what is idolatry? How do I understand it? Paul goes through, he's explaining just this unraveling that happens. He says, it happens because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped the, the, the creature rather than the creator. So it's simply replacing Jesus with something else. It's a, it's a, there's a substitute, substitution that happens. And an idol doesn't have to be a statue. An idol can be, can be all kinds of things. It can be a person. So your spouse can be an idol. Your child can be an idol. Your friends can be an idol. Your parents can be an idol. Um, uh, what's his name? There's this author who I quote all the time. He talks about how we all, like in a courtroom, there's like a box of, of jurors that we all have like these 12 people in our lives. And really, it's, it's that group of people. Those are the ones that we care about in terms of their, their approval of us. Everyone else in the world can think we're whatever, but if that group approves or disapproves, it just swings us on one side or the other. Um, so an idol can be a person. An idol can be a place. Um, you can have a vacation spot. That is your idol. You can have this, this retirement camp that you dream of as an idol. There can be a part of town that, that you live in like, or aspire to live in that can be an idol. It can be a place. It can be a, an idol can be a thing. It could be money. It could be a house, a car, the stuff that goes in the house, in the car. Your wardrobe could be an idol. Uh, like grown up, like toys, you know what I mean? Like when, you, like when you get old enough, you're like, I can afford to buy things now. And you just go and you buy things that you don't really need, but they're kind of fun to have. Uh, hobbies can be an idol. Retirement account. If you're obsessed with accruing money for your retirement or whatever. If you own a business, that can be, like, that can be an idol. Um, also, potential idol would just be ideas, like something that's not really tangible, but it's this concept that you kind of can obsess over, like your occupation and career, uh, marriage, family, the idea of success or purpose, or um, just like comfort. You know, like I never want to be uncomfortable. Like my, like as long as I'm comfortable, that's like my happy place, right? Like. Any of these things can be replacement gods, and they usually start off as a good thing. Like almost every idol for us starts off as something, it's a gift from God. All those things I just named, like they're gifts. Your kids are a gift. If you're married, your spouse is a gift. Your friends, your family, your, your job, like, the, like what, whatever it may be, those things are not inherently evil of themselves. So please don't hear me saying any of those things are bad they're good things, but, but they take on a different life. And they take on a different life when they start lying to you. Look back at that verse, Romans one twenty five. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. That, that you're, the people, the places, the things, the ideas, they are from God to tell us something that's true. And yet those things begin to lie to you sometimes. That's what I discovered about being a homeowner. It's like, man, my house will, it'll lie to me. Like it'll almost speak to me sometimes. It's like, you really need this in your house. You need this to go over here. You need this for when guests come over. You need this or this or this or this. And next thing you know, you have this super long punch list, none of it that you can afford. And yet, and no one ever said that. Like no one, there's no 
anyone over you saying you have to have all this stuff. And I was like, my house is lying to me. But those relationships can lie to you. Those ideas can lie to you. Those things that you want can all lie to you. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And the lies can, be, uh, can cover all kind of ground. They can lie about who God is. They can lie about his character, about his power, about his care for you. They can lie about who you are. We can come in here and sing a song like we just did about I'm a child of God, yes I am. And there's a part of you that's going, no you're not. Nah. He's not for you. He's against you. They can lie about who you are. They can lie about what happiness looks like. They can lie about what will fulfill you. They can lie about how, how you compare to other people. They can lie about if you're successful or not. They can lie about what, makes, what it means to be a real man or a real woman. They can lie, lie about what makes others approve of you. They can lie about if you're complete or if you are important or if you are loved. These, these things will begin to lie to us sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. So you put that together in that verse. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They, they did that exchange. So instead of the truth, now there's a lie. And then you begin to worship this created thing, which could be the person, the place, the thing, the idea, all that kind of stuff. And what happens is that in and of itself is, is one thing. You can have these gifts from God. They can begin to lie to you. And that doesn't make it an idol. It starts being an idol when you start to believe the lie. When the exchange has happened and it's trying to lie to you and saying, this is not true, this is true. And you're like, I think that is true. I think that bag of sand is the truth. I think that lie that's being presented to me is the truth. And so these created things lie to you about deep and significant things. And once you begin to believe the lie, then you end up devoting yourself to it. And an idol is born. You end up fantasizing about what, what could be and if all these things were yours and then if this happened, then you'd be complete and then you end up sad because none of those things are yours or maybe they, they won't be ever or whatever and you end up, then, then, then the lie begins to change. Now, now instead of saying this is what success looks like, this is what happiness looks like, then the lie is like, and since you don't have that, now you're a failure. Now no one really loves you. Now you're not really all those things. So then the idols take on multiple lies. And it's almost like wherever, wherever you're, weak, you're like weak in, in a given day or a given season, the idol meets you in that weakness and just makes it worse. You know why? Because it's from your enemy. That's why. That, that is why. Because he's crafty and he's scheming against you. And I'm not, I'm not the type that blames everything on the devil. Like I think we're pretty good at complicating our own lives. Right? Amen? Okay. We're good at it. It's not all about him. But in those times when, to go back to the, to the story in Daniel, when the music sounds and the idol lies to you, says it's time to bow down, and we say yes, I think the enemy has a role in that. So, what does it mean to bow down? You might think, well, I never bowed down to my house. <laughs> never bowed down to my bank account. Never bowed down to my child. Bowing down, I, for us, I think, is really about pursuit. 
So here are these, these things in our lives that are lying to us and we begin to believe these lies. Bowing down to it, worshiping it, um, is by, by pursuing whatever that, whatever that might be. I was reading through an article the other day that quoted this pastor. He, he said it like this. Um, he, he talks about looking for a functional savior that gets us out of our own version of hell. He's like, so if, uh, if you're single and that's your quote-unquote hell and marriage is your quote-unquote heaven, then what you, what, who's your functional savior? You go find a fiancé and that moves you in that direction. Like that we become devoted to like, how does, how does this idolatry speak to me? What can I do to get out of this situation? And here are some things that I've seen. There's just some examples that I've like either talked with people about or I've experienced myself. I will not tell you which category is which in case you're curious, but some of these are my own. And some of these are people that I've watched it happen over the years. What does it look like to, to bow down, to pursue these things I've, some have married too quickly or married the wrong person or married for the wrong reasons or maybe all those together because of idolatry. Some have gone into significant debt just to live or maintain a certain lifestyle because of idolatry. Some have ignored God's call on their lives because it doesn't fit into the 10-year or the 20-year plan. Some have stayed in a career that God's calling them out of too long just because they make a really fat salary. Some have devoted excessive time to things that are finite and ignored time spent on things that are eternal. Some obsess over the external, how you look, all that kind of stuff, and put on the back burner the internal things that God really cares about. Some have neglected marriage because of the kids and the craziness of their schedules. Some have overscheduled their lives um, on purpose. Some have lied in order to maintain a certain reputation because of idolatry. Some, li- some people live vicariously through their kids because of idolatry. Some let social media be a bully to them because of idolatry. Some use social media to cast themselves in a certain light because of idolatry. Some... Oh, well, because of idolatry, you, don't, you can never really walk in commandment one, and so you never get close to commandment two. So hospitality is never a thing. And just in general, building your lives around whatever the idol may be, kids, spouse, money, sports, you name it, instead of Jesus, it happens and happens and happens. And if you read Romans 1, Paul says the trajectory of idolatry is your life completely unravels. And that is not what Jesus has for us. So he is looking at his bride and be like, why are you looking for a boyfriend? Why are you looking elsewhere? And it's important, I think, for us to, to stop and say, why, why do we do this? And if you're sitting here and you're like, um, I'm not really tracking along with you, but I think, I think, I think I need to dig into this a little bit more. Let me give you really quickly four places that I would start if I was you. And if someone comes to me and they say, hey, I, I'm not sure where to start. Here's what I tell them. Number one, look at your time. Outside of what you, what you have to do every day or every week, how do you spend your time? 
Because idols demand time. They do. If your idol is money, if it is entertainment, and if, it's your, if it is your appearance, if it is your career, you know, past a reasonable point. Um, it could be that your use of your time is like an arrow that's going to point towards something that God wants to challenge you on. And time is also energy. So you have to consider not only your time, but how much is left in the tank at the end of it for, for all the other stuff, the important stuff in your life. I would look at time. Second thing I would look at is money. What does your spending look like? Not only do idols demand time, idols are expensive. They're very expensive. If your hobbies or grown-up toys or debt or even your family sometimes, like, like those things can become very expensive. Are they supposed to be that expensive? Are you supposed to be spending your money in the way that you are? And I, I'll say this, and you just need to know that um, I say this because I believe that this is important for our souls uh, and not about a church budget. I don't work on commission, so don't, like, I got nothing in this, okay? But if you do not tithe, like if tithing is not a form of worship for you, then you need to ask for insight as to why. I'm not accusing you of idolatry and money and that kind of stuff, but I'm saying like, if you've been around church for a while and you know what, you know what Jesus has to say about money. He said, I've given you a job and you can survive on 90% of what that job pays you. I can make it work. I will make it work. I provided the job. Like you, if, if you know and you're grounded in what that means, yet you're choosing not to, then perhaps that is an arrow that's also pointing to something that if you really want to dig into it, you can. Time, money, third one, emotions. Like what, what gives you emotional swings? Like into like extreme happiness or extreme something else, you know? Like what makes you, what makes you fearful or angry um, or happy or prideful, you know? Like what, what is bullying your emotions around? Because, like, idols will make you feel. They will make you feel things. So you look at yourself, and you're like, why why am I emotionally all up and down about this? Maybe your emotions are pointing you towards something. Here's the last one. Um, It's kind of maybe strange, but, like, what do you, what are your, look at your daydreams. You know, like, what do you just kind of sit around and just, like, dream about? Because idols are rooted in fantasy. They're, they're rooted in us being like, man, wouldn't my life be so much better if this? Wouldn't this make me happy or content or fulfilled or joyful or whatever it is? Pay attention to not only your emotional swings, but where, where, what do you love to just daydream about? And is that an arrow pointing to an idol? Now look, with your, your time, your money, your emotions, and your daydreams, those, they may not be pointing to bad things. They may not be pointing to idols. But they might. And so if you are, you're sitting there and you're like, man, I do kind of feel like I'm unraveling a little bit. Like I, I feel like there's, just, there's something wrong. Like I'm, I feel like I'm just so back and forth in my faith and in, in my love for the Lord, and I'm just, I'm just so pushed around by life. Maybe... maybe th- this is pointing you in a direction of something to read about and to pray about. I can put resources in your hands. Like I, can, I would love to help you. Your elders would love to help you. Staff would love to help you. We'd love to help with this because this is a serious thing. 
Because the key is, okay, if... Can I identify the idol? Can I identify how I'm bowing down to it? And then when the music cranks up from that idol, when the lies start coming and it's the cue, now it's time to bow, to pursue me, to devote yourself to me, how do I do like these guys did? They'd be like, you must be crazy. I'd rather die than do that. Like that's who we want to be, right? I have good news for you. That's who Jesus is making you into. No, no, that's who Jesus is making you into, into that kind of person. You might be like, I think I'm that person now. I hope you are. I hope you feel that way. I hope that you're like, this dude needs to shut up because this ain't my thing. But if it is, Jesus came to free you from this, to free you from pursuing and devoting things that are death. And he's given himself to you to devote yourself to and to pursue, and he is life. And all you really have to do is think of it in terms of like, okay, do I want to pursue death or do I want to pursue life? Okay, I want to pursue life. You don't have to know the mechanics of how that has to happen. You don't have to know every step. You just have to know what, what it, which way am I going to be oriented. And if there's a part of you that's pursuing death, do you want God to show it to you? Because he will. Do you want him to lead you forward? Because he will. It really comes down to you, um, is Jesus going to be the love of your life or not? Is he going to be the one that you're faithfully married to? Or are you going to try to cheat on him? Now we're going to do communion. You know, communion will be an option here in a minute. And one of the things that's awesome about communion is that it is essentially covenant renewal. Jesus is saying, this is, this is when we got married. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out from you. And you are welcome on our communion line. You do not have to be a member of this church. You are welcome in this line if you just want to say yes to Jesus because he said yes to you. If you don't know what that means, there'll be some folks here on the front row that would love to talk to you about that or I'll be available after, all that kind of stuff because Jesus is inviting you into his life. But the battle against idolatry is won when you reverse the exchange. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, so we just exchange the lie with the truth. The truth is, Jesus says, I have committed myself to you. And when you take that bread and you dip it in that juice and you take it, you're telling him, you are, you are it for me. You are it for me. And that, my friends, puts us on a path away from death and toward life. And the steps that are, come after that, we can figure that out. But the first one is a step toward him. So you can do that through communion. You can do that through singing. You can come and kneel here and pray. You can give at those stations over there on the corners. Any of those four rhythms are, are open to you, but we're about to stand and sing. And I, I just want to encourage you to not ignore anything that he stirred in you through the songs, through the prayer time, through the scriptures. Let's be good stewards of what he's doing here. Okay, let's stand together as the band comes back. I know that that was a little longer than I anticipated, and I'm really not sorry, but I just want to acknowledge it. Um, but I will say this. Uh, your kids in the nursery are fine. Don't, don't rush through these, these few moments before chaos happens. Don't rush through it, okay, just because you're worried about time and all that stuff. All right? If God wants to do business with us, let's, let's, 
Let's let him do it. All right, let me pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you love us enough to, uh, to refuse to endorse our rebellion, to refuse to point us toward the uh, replacement gods, that you love us enough to tell us what the truth is and to help us reverse that exchange that may have happened, that you love us enough to give your body and for it to be broken for us and your blood for it to be poured out for us. And you are it for us. There are other voices, other relationships, other, all these things that are constantly trying to take your place. And yes, God, I confess on behalf of all of us, sometimes we let that happen. But that's not what we want. So would you help us to be faithful to you? You and you alone. And so as we respond, that's going to vary from person to person. But this is our opportunity to, to come to you and to confess to ask for help and to acknowledge um, your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And so may these closing moments be something that's honoring to you in every way as we respond. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Communion is open. You can come when you're ready.